You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, this is Brent Johnson with Santiago Capital, and I'm happy to be back on Real Vision, and I have a real treat today. I'm very excited, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy listening um, and meeting uh, this fellow if you've not already done so. I came across him probably two months ago when somebody sent me one of his videos, and um, you know, I, I, I watched it, and I was like, I got to reach out to this guy, and I got busy doing something else. And then, you know, about a month later, I got another one. And then I was like, now I, you know, I can't put this aside anymore. And uh, the guy is Steve Van Meter. Uh, Steve, welcome to Real Vision. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Brent, thank you for having me and for being on Real Vision today. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we're going to have a, a good talk. Uh, I know that uh, we have some stuff uh, that we agree on. Uh, we may uncover some things that we disagree on, but either way, I think it's going to be, be be fun to talk to. But but for, for for anyone who's not already familiar with Steve, I want to set it up a little bit because uh, I just think he I, I think everybody should follow him for a number of reasons. Number one, I this is the, I promise you this is meant as a compliment, but I kind of think of him as the Mr. Rogers of finance uh, because he comes in here and he's just a fantastic communicator. He keeps it very simple. He doesn't put on any airs. Um, all of his stuff is fact-based. And the most important thing is that Steve is genuine. You can just tell when you listen to him, he's a genuine guy. He believes what he's saying and he's trying to help people. And I think whether or not you end up agreeing with Steve or not, that doesn't matter. Uh, but if you listen to him, you'll come away with a very clear vision of what he's talking about, why he's talking about, and what his opinion is. There's not going to be any, you know, willy-nilly, what's he really think. Well, before we get too much further, why don't you just give a quick background on who you are, kind of how you, what you're doing, and kind of how you got to where you're at. That'll provide a little context for, for what we do next. Sure. I, I've been in the business for almost 20 years. I'm a certified financial planner and macro money manager. So I manage a macro fund and I invented a long equity macro strategy called Portfolio Shield, uh, which is based on the monetary system and the credit cycles with the unique hedging uh, algorithm that reduces risk during volatile and bear markets. I also, at least up until the pandemic, teach a class at my junior college on retirement planning, which is now available on my website free of charge. And then three days a week, I host a macro investing show, as you mentioned, on YouTube. Well, you know, I think uh, one of the most, uh, uh, I guess, biggest debate right now, for lack of a better word, in, in the global markets is the whole inflation versus deflation. And I think that's probably been the big debate for the last couple of years. Uh, but I guess it's kind of heated up recently. And the inflationists have... I would say kind of taken the ball over the last two or three months, um, especially since March. And, um, you know, that's kind of the Zeke guys of time. Is, is it real this time? And, and, I, and I, you know, you kind of have some specific uh, opinions on this matter. Um, so I guess I would ask you just for just, you know, just, just right off the bat, are, are the inflationists right or the deflationists right? The deflationists, which is a very small minority, they're absolutely correct. 
And, you know, this is something that as I grew into the macro space, which I think if you don't mind me adding that the way I got into macro, oddly enough, was I wanted to be a better advisor. And as you know, Brent, once we get our licenses, there's not a lot of places you can go to learn, you know, how the system works. And one day I was, saw this ad from this guy named Rao Powell, who had no idea who it was for the service called Real Vision. And this was back in the early days where he, where he ran that business cycle ad. And I said, I don't know who that guy is and I don't know what he knows, but I know how to know everything he knows and then some. So it's cool that my macro journey has started with Real Vision and here I am today. So in terms of inflation versus deflation, we can look back to Milton Friedman, uh, Friedman, the late economist, and he was really the first person that postulated that low interest rates were a sign of tight financial conditions and that high interest rates were a sign of loose financial conditions. And, and we can actually test that today, which is really cool, because the way I approach things is when interest rates are rising, they're rising due to the fact that lending growth is occurring. So when I go and look at the weekly Fed H.H data, and if I see lending growth rising, then I should see interest rates starting to rise because I approach them like a sponge, that their job is to come out into the monetary system and soak up those dollars being created. Now, the other direction is why do interest rates fall? Well, when we look again back at the lending data, and if we see a period where there's either no growth or a contraction like we do now. So I, would, I just looked before we went on and uh, all loans and leases at all commercial banks are contracting at around two and a half percent on a rolling 90 day basis. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you financial conditions are tight and that interest rates need to actually fall to do what? Well, spur lending growth. So the fact that we're not seeing really any lending growth it tells us that we're more likely to experience inflation than deflation because interest rates need to fall to a level where they will create lending growth and then turn that will turn into inflation. So what I like to say is that low interest rates are deflationary up until they become inflationary. And that inflationary point is when there's enough people that come out into the market and start borrowing a lot of money. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, so it, it, I, you know, it's funny because I've always kind of said that low rates are deflationary as well. And, you know, some people agree, but there's a lot of people who just say, no, that's absolutely wrong. You know, they're lowering interest rates because that will spur inflation. And, you know, I think the, the last 10 years kind of shows that that's not necessarily the case. And I think Europe's an even better example of saying that that's not the case. Uh, and I've always kind of used kind of a, uh, 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 you know, kind of a meme to explain it. And I've said, you know, it's like in The Godfather when uh, Sonny Corleone says, we're going to go to the mattresses. You know, when things are bad, everybody just hunkers down and tries to outlive the other guy. They're not out there lending. They're not out there trying to increase their business. They're just kind of out there trying to survive. And I, what I like about you is, you know, you don't just use a narrative-based uh, explanation. You actually go to the websites. You go to the reports that the Fed and the banking system and the governments put out on a weekly basis, and you actually show people uh, how this is actually happening. What what kind of started you and how did you kind of figure all that out? Is that something that somebody taught you or is that just a, a, a matter of you kind of trying to all figure it out 
and you kind of got to a place where it all kind of all came together. Well, as I started down my journey with Real Vision, and this was back in the early days when I think they had two or three videos, and, and I think there was a, a report service, I don't remember the name, and I was watching all this content and digesting it, and what's really cool, as we all know about Real Vision, is you get a wide view of terms of perspective. And from there, I went and learned about uh, macro voices and other places like Twitter where I could just absorb all of this information. And I thought, it's kind of interesting that there's people on both sides. And they would put charts up and graphs up and say, well, look at this relationship or look at that. And I would look at them and be like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So what I had to do is start digging underneath the data and finding people who really understood the system and, you know, like Dr. Lacey Hunt and Jeffrey Snyder and, and really vet out the people who really understood it and then dig even deeper. So whenever they said to read something, you know, I went and read it. In fact, one of my uh, favorite early podcasts, which is no longer around, is Adventures in Finance by Grant Williams. And one of the things that really pushed me down this road was uh, in one episode, he was talking about the book, The Lords of Finance, which I'm sure, Brent, you probably read. Absolutely. And, and, and Grant said, I read this book and I read it every year. And my thought was, well, Grant's a really smart guy. If he reads it, I should read it. And as I was reading that book, I realized there's this whole frame of, of the monetary system that was, well, completely flawed. Because here you had these people trying to run this machine that, and they didn't know what they were doing. It, it worked until it didn't. When I got done reading that book, I started reading every book I could find about monetary policy. And what struck me as I continued this path was hardly anybody in our industry actually knows how the system works. It's kind of like going down and buying a, a new car and the, and the salesman pops the hood open and says, wow, look at that. And people are like, wow, that's really impressive. They don't know how it works. I mean, yeah. they just look at that and go like, wow, that's really cool. And when you understand how the system works, it gives you a massive competitive advantage to not only getting through the data, but identifying what trends are more likely to come than not. Yeah, I, I could totally agree. It, uh, you know, I, I kind of did a period of self-discovery myself to kind of figure out how it actually works. And once you kind of, once you kind of crack that code, um, it, it, do, it does help a lot. It doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to be right, but at least it helps you understand the context of when things are said. And just because somebody says something doesn't make it true, right? And so you can kind of, it helps your, your BS detector, if, if nothing else. Um, well, so then let's follow that a little bit further, because if low rates are deflationary and the banks, the, the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world are holding rates down to make them lower, is QE inflationary or is QE deflationary? Yeah, that, that was something I struggled with when it first came out, because I was on the wrong side of that, because I, I believe what everyone's telling me this QE was inflationary but it wasn't. And that was really interesting to me because the Fed has two policy tools. They have the federal funds rate and then they have the, the monetary base or their balance sheet. And it's, it, it became odd to me. And this is where I started questioning it more because I approach this industry like a little kid. You know, a little kid asks his parents, why? So if you put up a chart or something and I say, well, why is that true? Why does Brent believe that? And that's really just helps me take a shovel out and just dig into this. And so when I looked at quantitative easing, it didn't make sense to me why that it was very clear that everyone agreed that when the Fed lowers the federal funds rate, that that lowers short-term rates. But for some bizarre reason, everyone thought that quantitative easing led to higher interest rates and on the long end. And that just really didn't make any sense to me. 
So as I dug into what quantitative easing does is the Fed is actually going out and buying bonds. And the common misconception, and in fact, we've been seeing this on Twitter here over the weekend, is that people believe the banks are directly getting that money back. So if I was to say buy a, your watch off of you, the, the, everyone would assume that, hey, here's money, that you actually have it. But that's not how quantitative easing works. Instead of the banks directly receiving that money back, the Fed takes it and places it in a reserve account with the bank's name on it inside an account at the Federal Reserve member bank. So I look at it kind of like a uniform gift to minors account. So I can go to the bank, right, if I'm under 18, because I hear my parents talking about it, and I go to the teller and say, I'd like my money, and they can say, well, we have an account here with your name on it, but it's not yours. It belongs yeah. to your parents. So I view this, and it's not the correct term, but it makes sense to me, as I call it a collateral account. That should the Federal Reserve never return those bonds, which we could argue that they'll probably be on the balance sheet in perpetuity. But let's just say that Congress comes in one day and wipes out the Fed's balance sheet, then that cash would return to the banks. In the meantime, the banks cannot touch it. Now, technically, they can lend against it, but they really don't need to do that. So when you look at the relationship of, of QE being deflationary or inflationary, the Fed is buying something off the banks and not paying for it. So they're not returning that cash. So the, the Fed is actually removing liquidity instead of adding it like they claim they are. Yeah, and I think that, that what you've just touched on is such a key thing to understand. And it took me a long time to get it. But once you see it, it's kind of like, holy cow, right? And, and it kind of changes everything. Um, yeah. And, 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 and the, well, I, think, I, th I think the interesting thing is, is that people who dig into this and they kind of go through the steps, you can do 98% of the work and do 98% more than anybody else. And you'll get to the point where the Fed is giving cash back to the banks and they're taking the bonds. The problem is, and, and therefore you kind of feel like you've done all this work, you finally understand it, you've got a leg up on everybody else, but it's actually that last 2% where the details lie. And the fact that the Fed is not giving the banks cash. And they can't use the proceeds from the bonds that they're selling, quote unquote, selling to the Fed. And, but once you realize that, you do realize that QE does not work the way it is. Uh, the narrative says it does. And, and it makes all the difference in the world. Right. In fact, it makes sense when you think about it that it's designed to suppress or lower interest rates. So the way people have to understand QE is it's just a swap in reserve. So banks are holding treasury securities in reserve um, from bills, notes, and bonds, and the average maturity is probably you know, less than seven years because the, there's more bill issuance than anything. But all the Fed is doing is just swapping it with an overnight maturity of cash. So the banks are actually kind of, you, you think about them as they're losing from that situation because a bond pays far more interest than cash, but they have no choice. They have to go along with it because all the Fed is doing, and this is interesting because if you go back to the great financial crisis, there is a point in the charts where you see this massive short squeeze in the bond market. Interest rates just go boom, straight down. Well, what the Fed is doing, and I'm not sure they realize this completely, is they're actually removing 
treasury securities from the market. They're creating the biggest short squeeze out there. And the market doesn't realize it. So the market thinks, okay, this is really inflationary. So what would you do from a money manager position? Well, I got to short the bond market, dump all my bonds. And then all of a sudden you get squeezed because bond prices are rising. And people go like, I don't get it. Well, look at the progression of money. So how does money get eventually get to the Fed? Well, the U.S. Treasury has an option. And the primary dealers show up at that auction and bid on new issuance. Then they take that new issuance, which under the current amount of $80 billion a month, is entirely flipped of notes and bonds, because right now the Fed's not buying bills, even though they claim they are. You can look at the data and see they're actually not buying bills right now. So the primary dealers then flip those to the banks. Now, the first step is people think, all right, well, interest rates are going to go up which means the primary dealer are going to buy at auction. And then in between the time they sell to the banks, they're going to lose money because interest rates go up. I don't know about you, Brent, but I, I, I don't think primary dealers are in business to lose money. But let's keep going. So now the bank gets it. Now in between the bank holding it and then flipping it to the Fed, interest rates go up and they lose money. So now all of a sudden banks are swapping reserves with the Fed and getting fewer reserves doesn't make any sense. Now, what makes sense to me is the dealers are really smart people. They want to make money. They're going to flip to the banks for a profit. Now, the banks want to get more reserves off this exchange. They're going to flip to the Fed for a profit. And as a result, they're going to drive interest rates up on top of the fact that the Fed is actually reducing supply. And I did the math and looked at July's data where the Fed bought $80 billion a month in Treasury securities and the primary dealers took from auction, say, I want to say around $72 billion or so. I, I could be slightly wrong on the number, which tells me the primary dealers have to go out to the market and take up more supply to meet the demands of the Fed. And so when you start connecting all the dots, it becomes very clear that not only is it deflationary, it's going to lead to a massive short squeeze in the bond market. So I guess that would put you in the bond bull camp? 100%, my friend. What's your what's your nickname again? The Bond King. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love and, it. And, and, okay. I've, and I've stolen that from uh, Jeff Gonlack, who has who has yet to um, defend it. Uh, but I do have a crown that I wear from time to time on my show. That because I don't know if he has a Bond King crown, but I do. Well, so I think one of the questions that everybody out there that will be listening to this and that it was under the impression that the Fed is giving the banks cash when they buy the bonds from them. Okay, so now we know they're not giving them cash. They're crediting their reserve account at one of the, you know, regional Federal Reserve banks. If that's the case, then where are the banks getting the cash to buy the new issued treasuries that the primary dealers buy from the treasury? Well, they're getting it from the economy through their normal business of, you know, in collecting interest fees and other things that banks do to get money. And that's also what's interesting is how it makes it deflationary because the Fed is inadvertently pulling liquidity from the markets. And yet you hear, you know, Chair Powell, and he's not the first Fed chair to come out and say, well, we're, we're pumping liquidity into the markets. And then, you know, you hear Trump administration, again, not the first presidential administration to say the same thing. And it's odd because it's doing the exact opposite, yet they want people to believe that they're injecting liquidity and creating inflation to get people to go out and spend money to create inflation. It's all psychological. It's all psychological. And so it's it, it's in a way the Fed is bluffing, right? The Fed is saying that we're going to do this and it's going to be inflationary. And therefore, people hear that 
And then they say, well, if it's inflationary, then I need to get in front of that. So then they it influences their actions. And then other people see the banks do it or, you know, market participants do it. So then they do it. And it's kind of a, a knock on effect of the Fed's initial, I guess, comments. Is that is that how you would describe it? Exactly. And And what's interesting is that people still struggle to believe that even after they hear the explanation. And if you go back and study the Federal Reserve Act, which I encourage everyone to do, and you can go back and, and all you have to do is read uh, the Federal Reserve Act of 1937. And it's really clear because it says what the Fed can and can't do in terms of buying treasury securities and now mortgage-backed securities. But the Federal Reserve Act is really clear about one thing in general, they can't print money. So I view the Fed as kind of like a purpose-built ND of like a firefighter. So, you know, if my house is on fire, I don't, I call the firefighter to put it out. I don't expect them while they're there to say, light my neighbor's house on fire, you know, or if I need help lighting something on fire, I don't call them. Well, that's the Fed. They are a purpose-built institution to quell inflation. Because when they came into existence, deflation wasn't an issue. No one sat around saying, man, we've, we've got this deflationary problem. We need a central bank to print money. No, the problem was inflation. And so they created the Fed and the rules around the Fed so restrictive, they can't create inflation. They can do it if they tried. So all they can do, which they figured out over the years that their best policy tool is for guidance, or as you know, we call it jawboning, if I can get, you know, Brent, if I can get you to believe there's inflation and go out and buy a new car, a new house, or go finance something, well, that creates dollars. And those dollars get created, well, that is inflation if I can get enough people to do it. So the Fed, yeah, doesn't have the ability to do what they want. They just want people to think they do because no one really understands how mon the monetary system actually works. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. And so, you know, with the common misperception being that the Fed prints the money and puts it into the system and that's inflationary, but with the actuality being that it's the commercial banks that print money out of thin air and they do that via the extension of credit, right? Absolutely correct. I mean, I would argue that if the Fed could print money, interest rates wouldn't be where they're at and the dollar would be much lower. We, we see a lot of other things over the last 40 years that would validate the fact that the Fed could print money and they can't. All right. So let's, let's, let's go back and let's focus on one issue because I can already hear everybody out there who who's of the opinion that the Fed gives cash to the banks and then the banks use that to go, you know, buy bonds or do whatever they do. Let's go back and focus on the reserves. We've explained the fact that when the Fed buys the bonds from the banks, they do not give the banks cash. What they give them is that they credit their account of reserves at the Fed. So it actually doesn't even leave the Fed. It just credits their account at the Fed. Okay. So then people will say, well, they use those reserves to go buy the bonds. Why can they not use those reserves to go buy the bonds? Because they're not theirs. So, exactly. you know, it's simple. Let's say I'm going to borrow your car. But let's we'll explain that. Let, let, let's explain why it, it, it's theirs, but they're not usable. Let's explain that because I know, I know we had this big argument over the weekend on Twitter. Yeah. I get the question all the time. I'm sure I'll get it a hundred more times. 
but let's explain why they cannot use the reserves that they are credited with at their account at the Fed to go out and buy more bonds. Because they don't have access to the money. So it's it's in their name only. It's it's held at the Fed by the Fed, but it's not there. So like I said, I'll use the example. Let's say you have a really expensive car. You know, say you have a Ferrari or something, and, I, and you're going to loan it to me for the weekend. And he's like, Steve, I've seen your driving record and stuff. I don't really trust you. And so I take a bunch of money. And I say, okay, Brent, I'll put it in an account for you with your name. But it's a collateral account. So I leave, take the car, and you go like, great, I've been wanting to get rid of that thing. So you go down to the bank and say, hey, I'd like my money. They go, it's not yours, Brent. It's not yours. It's not until that we can prove the car has not been returned or damaged that you can have it. Well, this is the same case with, with the Fed. Is it's You have to view it as a collateral account. The bank's it's in their name only, but they cannot touch it. Now, they can lend against it if they want to risk their own capital, and a borrower has to risk their own collateral. But the banks have plenty of money, and they don't need to do that. But they cannot touch the money. The Fed restricts that from happening. Very good explanation. Now, I, that kind of leads into, and I know you're a fan of Lacey Hunt, and I, you know, I'm a fan of Lacey Hunt. And there's been times where I've disagreed with him, and there's been times where I've agreed with him. But throughout it all, he is as smart as they come. I think you'll probably agree with that. Um, and not only that, but I, I've never met him, but it, it, from what I he's one of the nicest people in the world, like a, like a true gentleman. Right. But, uh, you know, he has said ad nauseum and, and you can kind of also kind of hear the frustration in his voice sometimes when he's explaining this over and over that 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 the reserves cannot be used. Um, uh, but he said recently that if something was changed, well, well he, he said that if 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 the Fed could ever use their liabilities as legal tender then inflation happens. So these reserves at the Fed for the member banks, those are liabilities to the Fed. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And since they can't be used now, he has always said this is why we are in a deflationary environment. But the point I think that you, I, and, you know, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but as I understand him, he's saying if something were to change and Congress were to authorize the Fed to use their liabilities as legal tender and return those liabilities to the banks, then the banks would have the cash. And then the banks could spend and do whatever they want. And that is the wildfire inflation scenario. Do you agree with that? I agree with that 100%. In fact, I would encourage anyone who's not heard of Lacey Hunt to immediately start following him and reading everything he puts out. Because in my opinion, that guy is probably one of the smartest people in terms of the bond market that's alive today. And if, and I think you posted on Twitter, if you could spend an hour with someone, if I could spend a weekend with that guy trying to absorb everything he has, I would. And I think recently he's been misinterpreted because he, he's talked about these becoming you know, cash, you know, these liabilities coming out. And people interpreted like, he's worried about it. No, no, I don't think he's worried about it. He's just explaining what if. Right. And I don't think he believes for a minute that Congress is going to come out tomorrow and say, OK, you know, balance sheet for the Fed, you know, let's take the eraser to it. He's just saying, look, if that happened, it would be wildly inflationary and it would be because the banks would all of a sudden get this cash. And what would they want to do with it? Get rid of it. Well, and I think not only that, but right now, like for the Fed to the Fed is a reactionary agency. They're not a proactive agency. And so for them to take a step like that 
to, I mean, which is a huge step to go from reserves not being cash to reserves being cash is an enormous that, that that's a Rubicon bigger than any Rubicon that's been crossed so far. And I, and I won't sit here and say it can't be crossed and that it won't be crossed. It very well may be crossed at some point. But for that to be crossed, something has to happen to push the Fed to do it. Would you agree with that? Right. And I think, you know, Lacey points out, I'm sure you've heard this, that the Congress won't do this on their own. It was some, something that had the Fed would have to go to Congress and say, look, you really need to do this. I, I personally don't think Powell's the right guy. And the only reason I say that is because he doesn't have a PhD and he's not written anything. He's kind of, you know, just a really successful guy. And you don't want to go down in history of a guy who doesn't have a doctorate and some papers to hide behind to do some bizarre monetary experiment. You much want to leave that to someone else. Who, who can talk their way out of it. But yeah, I totally agree that that would have to happen uh, with the Fed directing this. I don't think he's the right guy. I know Lacey doesn't think he is either, but it would have to have you know massive deflationary shock to the global economy and no recovery. Now, is that actually possible? Yeah, it absolutely is. Because we're with zero interest rates, we're, we're pretty much at the end game for monetary policy. And I don't think people really understand why that is. But zero interest rates are practically the dumbest thing a central banker can do because there's no way out of it, at least under the current laws. The Fed has no way out. Okay, so that leads into another topic, per per perfect segue, because you, ha you have said um, on, on your shows, and I don't remember exactly which one it is, that the, the bank, and this might be somewhat controversial, but some people may say, of course, but other people might think it's controversial. You already know what I'm going to say is yes. you have said that the banks are pulling rates lower because they are trying to engineer uh, an equity market correction or crash or however you want to. I'll, I'll, I'll let you put your own words on it so that the rates will go even lower. You want to explain your theory on that? Right. And yeah. Correct I, me if I have a correct me if I have it wrong. I don't. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, you're right. I've used the phrase the banks are going to crash the stock market. And if you look back, you know, a lot of what my whole thesis is is we're going to see a replay of the great financial crisis, just only bigger. I think I called the 2.0 plus. And the banks were really engineered that whole crash. Now, I, I don't know if they intentionally meant to do it, but it comes back to where we started this conversation is that low interest rates are deflationary. Now, if I'm a bank, what do I want? I want to lend money because I make money that way. And, it, and some of you say, well, you don't make a lot of money at low interest rates. Don't worry. I got origination fees and all kinds of other fees that you've never heard of that I'm going to hit you with. So don't worry about that. I've got that covered. So right now, if we look at lending growth, you know, as we mentioned earlier, on a rolling 90-day basis, all loans and leases at all commercial banks are at minus 2.5%. That is not good. That's a contraction in credit. The only saving grace is the residential real estate market, which on a year-over-year -year basis is running at 4 but on a rolling 90 days, it's at half a percent, which is, is super weak. So we know commercial industrial lending is in contraction. We know credit card lending is contraction. And we're in the middle of a massive pandemic. So as a banker, what am I What am I trying to do? One, I need to get people in borrowing. And number two, I'm really worried that all these people that are in deferment are going to be in default city at some point. So what do I want? Well, I need lower interest rates. And I can't actually make interest rates go down. I really need some help from the Fed. So I look at the relationship between the large commercial banks as the children of the Fed. 
And so coming out of the great financial crisis, the large commercial banks, you know, they really took all of the heat for this. And it was kind of directed toward them, although I'm sure, Brent, you and I could agree that it wasn't entirely their fault. Did they play a role? Oh, absolutely they did. But was it entirely their fault? No. So but they were OK with it. They took the blame and came out of it weaker than before. And they have all these regulations that they probably didn't like and still don't. And, you know, they were cool with it because up until recently, they've been able to buy their shares back. And that made them happy because, you know, these executives like to enrich themselves due to share buyback program. And everything was really cool up until the end of last quarter when they didn't pass the stretch test, which or they didn't get the right score, which I always find amusing because they're open book tests. Right. I mean, they're given the test ahead of time and then they didn't get they the score. Yeah. So it's kind of like, OK, um, and so what did the Fed come out and do? They said one key thing they did is say no more share buyback. And then all of a sudden, despite all the liquidity the Fed was injecting from its trillion dollar QE and, and subsequent 120 billion a month of QE, lending standards are now almost as tight as they were going into the stock market crash of 2009. So if we look back to the fourth quarter of 2008 and we look right now, you see lending standards are massively tightened. And the way I view this is, you know, the Fed said, okay, banks, you know, you're in trouble, go, go to your room and you don't get dessert or whatever. So the banks going in there and they were pouting and they said, you know what? No, this isn't going to, how it's going to be. We're going to get even. And how are we going to do that? We're just going to tighten lending standards and we're going to contract credit and we're going to do it until things start to crumble. Because what people don't understand about a debt-based monetary system is you need the debt to expand for the system to grow. And when the debt starts to contract, well, guess what? The whole system starts to fall apart really quickly. And the banks know that. So they're just going to sit here and say, fine, we'll just constrict credit until things start to fall apart. And then the Fed comes in with a bunch of QE to lower rates. But the, the catch is that contraction of credit, once that ball starts to roll, it, it doesn't stop real fast at all. In fact, it takes a while to stop. And then you have this massive deflationary shock of whatever the Fed's going to come in and do of untold trillions of QE and the unintended consequence. Because because you can't get you can't do monetary policy without having a penalty. That unintended consequence is you crash the economy and risk assets such as stocks, real estate, everything starts coming crumbling down, just like it did during the great financial crisis. Okay, so very good explanation. Let, let, so let's uh, let's take this one step further. If the banks are not actually getting cash from the Fed. And the Fed is actually removing liquidity rather than pumping liquidity in. Why has the dollar? Well, the dollar spiked in March. So, you know, in March, it, it's really I'm going to I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to come back to this question. You know, it, at the beginning of March, the dollar was around 96 or 97. Yeah. And within six days, it fell to 94, 90, I don't know, 95, 90. It, it, it had a big move down. And on March 9th, I think it was like at 94 or 93. Nine days later, it was at 102 or 103, something like that. Again, I don't have the chart right in front of me. Yeah, I got to um, a little 95 and up to 103. Right. And OK, that happened over nine days, I believe, or 11 days, something like that. And then over the last four months, um, you know, the Fed got control of everything. And they, they it's funny, I even sent out a, a tweet the, the day of the high and I said, if you're new to this dollar game and you're a bull, just beware because the Fed is going to do something and it's going to hurt. Now, I thought it was going to hurt a little bit. I did not think that they were. I thought they'd get it back to 96, 97. 
I did not think they were going to get it to 93, but they have. They got it to 93, 92 the other day. Okay, so if the Fed is not actually giving cash to the banks and they're not actually injecting liquidity, they're actually tightening standards, what has happened that the dollar pulled back from 102 or 103 to 92 or 93? Yeah, I have an opinion on that, uh, how valid it is. Um, So let's kind of talk about how it shot up really first, because a lot of people think that it's the Fed that weakened it. And I completely disagree with that. When I see repo loans popping up, to me, that is the monetary system starting to fracture. And you see, I just view it as the globe and I start to see these cracks because what the monetary system is tries to do at all times. Now, and I don't know if this is a common belief, but I think the monetary system is self-regulating, but the problem is the Fed and investors or speculators get in the way. Well, the monetary system was tight and we see the dollar start to rise. And that was due to the repo loan saying, look, folks, we have a dollar shortage. We've got problems. And if you don't do something, then asset prices are coming down. Now, everybody then saw this decline, as you pointed out, and they credited the Fed, right? Because the Fed did quantitative easing and that injected all of this magic liquidity. I don't think it had anything to do with the Fed. I think the Fed got lucky. In fact, the Fed gets pretty lucky frequently because other things happen. And what was the thing that happened in March? Well, we started seeing government transfers and the economy shut down. And people started putting loans into forbearance. So I started to ask myself, well, how could the dollar fall? And I had to go back to simple supply and demand. Well, if a weak dollar, if a dollar's falling, it means that people don't need them. So why didn't people need them? Well, one, they had more money than they had before the, when they were working. Number two, they couldn't spend it. I mean, nobody could spend money. Everything was shut down for the most part. And number three, their loans were in forbearance. So there was no demand for dollars. And so it starts to make a lot of sense that the dollar would weaken. And of course, the Fed gets credit for this, which is great because the next time it happens and the Fed does more QE, everyone's going to think the dollar's going to weaken. And I think the dollar's going to go suborbital, just the opposite, because I know that QE pulls out liquidity. And it was partially due to the repo and the, and the QE that caused that dollar spike. It wasn't until the fiscal showed up that all of a sudden the demand for dollars subsided. Okay, so let's take this. So, but the, but it, but but it has happened. The, the dollar has gone from 102 to 92. Um, you know, we're kind of at kind of a critical level on the dollar. Um, you know, the dollar bears insist that it's going to 85 and then 75, and that it's going to zero. Um, right. I've I've insisted that we are overdue for a bounce. It's the most oversold in 10 years. The positioning is the most bearish in 10 years. Um, the sentiment is the most bearish in 10 years. Uh, but I cannot rule out the fact that we are at an important level. And, you know, I would say that over the next three or four months, anything can happen. You know, I, I, I'm ready for anything. However, based on the design of the monetary system, as you and I know it's designed, the potential for a dollar spike always remains. Whether it actually shows up or not, I can't say for sure. I certainly have an opinion and I've, I've made that fairly well known. Um, but uh, but I can't I can't guarantee it. But I know based on the design of the system, there's always more debt than there's always more, than there is money, and so there always remains the possibility of a short squeeze on the on the money that underlies the debt. And you and I both agree that we're in a deflationary scenario and, until something changes. So my question to you is. If you think the dollar is going higher and we're set up for a big spike in bonds in the dollar and you know the system is deflationary, if you were a central banker and you really actually did want to create inflation, 
How would you do it? <laughs> if I was a central banker, I'd probably quit immediately. <laughs> I, <laughs> I would too. That's my answer. You can't have my answer. You, no, you I know to, because you have to stay there and solve the problem. You know, if I, you know, honestly, if I was a central banker, I'd probably hire uh, Jeff Snyder and Lacey Hunt and hope and whoever else they said to do it because I, and I would just take a back seat and say whatever those guys say we're doing. Uh, you know, I, I think the Fed has gotten away with this weak dollar, and I, I and part of me actually believes that they believe it too. And I thought it was interesting the the bottom of the dollar here coincided almost perfectly with the, the fiscal stimulus ending. And it starts to make sense because if I go from more than 100% of my pay to say 70% or whatever it is, what do I suddenly have? Oh, a demand for dollars. And the other way, see, I, I have a maybe a stronger opinion on the dollar because I'm highly convicted that it will go up because it's part of a three-legged stool that I look, that I call the trifecta of tightening. Because what does a weak dollar mean? It means financial conditions are loose or loosening. What is a strong dollar? It means they're tight or tightening. So let's look at the three major players. Well, we've got the bond market, which is saying, hey, financial conditions are tight. We've got the banks, which are tightening financial conditions or lending standards. And then over here, you've got the dollar hanging out saying, no, nah, everything's cool, man. Everything's loose. Well, you've got two of three parties saying the dollar's wrong, plus you've got no lending growth. So my view is the dollar is the odd man out. It's just only a matter of time before I say it goes suborbital. Now, my view is it's going to blow through 103. I don't know where it goes. Maybe, maybe Brent, you've got a price target. Uh, I just think it's going to go way higher than most people think. And it's going to be like an out-of-control bowling ball at a Jenga competition. I mean, people are just not going to see this thing coming. Let's touch on one point before I forget. Um, you might know the answer to this. I, I, I thought I knew the answer, and I, and I may be wrong. So if you happen to know, I'd love to know. Um, you've talked about the, the deferment of dollar demand because, you know, you didn't have to pay your mortgage. You didn't have to you know, pay that invoice. You didn't have, you know, you weren't going out to, you know, buy those new pair of shoes or whatever it was. There, there's been this delay of dollar payments. Um, but I think the key in that is that there's been a delay and a deferment. They haven't been forgiven. There's a delay and a deferment. So my argument has been that when that delay and when that deferment is over, whether it's due to they just can't defer them any longer, the, the, the businesses can't afford to defer them any longer, or it's because the economy opens back up. But for whatever reason, when that deferment ends, not only will there be the regular demand, but all those deferred payments that were deferred will now spike. But I've recently heard that Maybe that on some of those deferments, they they don't all come due when the deferments end. Maybe they've been pushed to the end of the loan or the end of the lease or the end of the the security, the maturity. Right. I do. In fact, on my show, I talked about how, hey, guess what's going to happen? Because the first loans went into deferment had to be in March, which means next month the first ones come out. And as you pointed out, not only are you going to have this six-month lump sum, but you have the seventh payment. And that is really interesting to me because in, in a debt-based monetary system, as, as we've talked about uh, before the show, there's always a shortage of dollar. Well, when do I really need dollars? When I have to pay my loans, right? That's why I go to work and why people do what they do is because they need to go out into the pool of dollars where there's not enough and fight and get theirs to make their debt payment. Well, on government-backed loans, you can take that deferment, stick it to the end. And then recently it said, now you can actually get a 12-month deferment. 
But if you have a non-government backed loan, say, say I've got a jumbo mortgage, right? Because I live up in the Bay Area or somewhere like that. Well, that's not government backed. So I can defer for six months. I'm not sure if you can do the full 12, but at the end of the deferment, I've got that lump sum plus the payment. And I, and I believe that's true with credit cards, car loans, and other type of non-government backed loans. Now, will the banks you know, make that adjustment for people? In the end, it doesn't matter. If everyone's loan gets, you know, deferment gets moved to the end, they still have to start making that payment. And with 28 million people on unemployment with less income, it's still going to create dollar demand. We've touched on the banking system. We've touched on the, the, the deflationary aspect of it. We've touched on the dollar. What we have not talked about is the euro dollar. And it's my belief that the heart of the beast or whatever, however you want to describe it, that the true problem lies with the euro dollar system. And the fact that as screwed up as the Fed is in the United States, there's not even a Fed outside the United States to even try and deal with the problem in the euro dollar market. Um, now, I don't want to put uh, any words in your mouth. So, again, I'm going to, I'm going to let you uh, kind of describe if you see any issue with the euro dollar market. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and, and what you see the real problem is. Yeah, there's a massive problem uh, in the euro dollar market. And I, I explain this as world dollar liquidity, which um, I stole the, the concept from and the formula from Lacey Hunt. Um, but I kind of pieced together uh, how it works, which is dollars start out in the U.S. because that's really it from the initial beginning of the system where they can where they have to start. So the way they move overseas is in preferentially a U.S. consumer will borrow money and spend it abroad on, on a foreign produced good or services. Now, it hits that company's bank account and they, they don't need, you know, in Germany, they don't need a lot of dollars. Now, maybe that auto manufacturer needs some dollars to go out and, and buy stuff, but they don't they don't need the most of it because they've got to pay their employees, you know, in euros or in another country in yen or whatever it is. So they go to their bank and swap those dollars for local currency. Now you've got effectively the euro dollar being born. You have a U.S. dollar sitting in a foreign bank account, if I've got that correct. Now that bank can lend against that, which is really quite fascinating that you have a non-U.S. bank that can create dollar-denominated loans, which, you know, it, it, when you first hear it, you go like, what? But it's really cool and also bizarre at the same time. So they're out creating these dollar-denominated loans, creating dollar liabilities. Now, when those banks stack up enough dollars, they don't need them, so they swap them to the their foreign central bank for local currency. And then when the foreign central bank stacks up enough dollars, they become really inflationary, and so they need to get rid of that inflation, which is a whole other concept most people don't understand, is those foreign central banks then come to the U.S. Treasury auctions, buy a bunch of bonds, and then those that money gets back into the U.S. where the federal government sp spends it out into the real economy and the cycle continues. When the Fed raises interest rates, they contract the number of dollars in the system. The problem is it mostly affects foreign dollars, which was bad. And then we had a tax cut, which at the time I said, you know, I, I'm really happy to get a tax cut, but we're going to look back and say that was really a bad idea because what was one of the big tenets of that tax cut was repatriation of dollars. dollars. So again, right. pulling more dollars out of the, the, the global system. And then you had the pandemic. And that was terrible because not only could people not go buy foreign produced goods and services, 
we couldn't go on a European vacation or, or, or Mexican or wherever you want to go in the world to get dollars out there. That didn't happen. So the system got starved. And as a result, people have been you know, kind of chirping about, oh, look at the foreign central banks are out selling their treasury securities. Oh, it's going to be inflationary. It's not how the system works at all. It, the way it works is when there's inflation and there's a lot of dollars being created in either the euro dollar system or by uh, U.S. consumers spend them abroad, foreign central banks tamper that inflation by buying treasury securities. When there's a dollar shortage, well, guess what? They've got a huge surplus of fully liquid treasury securities that they can go dumb to get the dollars. So, yeah, is there a huge problem in the foreign markets for dollars? It's outrageous. And it doesn't appear that anything we're doing right now is going to fix it at all. And do, have you have you followed the swap lines much when the when the Fed extended swap lines to the to the foreign central banks? I did, and and, and one of those are some of those things. that's like okay, it makes sense why we're doing it, and then people say, well, that's going to turn into inflation. It's like no, they have to pay them back. You know, if, if if Brent extends me a line of credit, it's not perpetual. I'm pretty sure he would like his money back at some point. But what's the challenge with those swap lines? They have to be paid back in dollars. So it's like putting a Band-Aid over, you know, a massive, you know, wound on you. Yeah, yeah, your well, artery's just, cut, and you're and you're throwing it, a Band-Aid it, over. It. Yeah, it, it stops the bleeding, but it makes the wound underneath it bigger. That's kind of the analogy I use. Okay, so Steve, so we again, we've talked a lot about deflation and you know why we think it's a deflationary environment, at least for now. Uh, I know one of the questions that we will get is even if even if people who previously believed that the banks were getting cash now believe that they are not getting cash. I know one of the other questions they will ask is, okay, but the government is spending more than they ever have. Um, they're running a bigger budget deficit than they ever have. And they're, you know, when the government spends the money into the market, that goes right into the market. It doesn't get trapped in the banks and that will be inflationary. Um, do you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, and I think this comes back to the whole rising M2 is inflationary, which is something I used to believe, but I no longer. And, and the answer is it is it can be, or sometimes is. It, it all depends on if, when I give, if, when the government gives somebody money, what do they do with it? Now, if they go out and you know buy a new uh, cell phone or something and finance it, well, yeah, that's inflationary. But if they use it to pay down their credit card debt, it's it's deflationary. And in government debt inherently is deflationary because it crowds out the real economy. And a, a great chart that Raoul Powell has used is a velocity of the M2, which he uh, charts against the labor force participation rate, which is really interesting because it says, hey, a lot of these jobs that were lost aren't coming back. And while the velocity of M2 is very complex, and I'm not going to pretend that I can explain it. What I have done is I've taken the uh, total government debt and I've taken that on chart and inverted it against the velocity of M2. So what it's telling us is the more the government borrow, the more they're crowding out the private industry and the more deflationary it is. So as far as I'm concerned, from someone who's a bond bull and dollar bull, bring it on. Keep borrowing. I mean, it, it won't last. If there is any inflation, it'll be transitory. Okay, so then the, you know the, the next question is is that it's a new paradigm now because the Fed is not just buying treasuries from the banks and it's not just the government running bigger deficits than ever before, but the Fed is now buying you know ETFs and corporate bonds and you know it, it, that's surely inflationary. Um, 
Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I mean, if, if there's ever anything the Fed has done that looks and acts and could be considered money printing, there you've got it. The issue that I have is I don't think they were buying bonds just to buy bonds. I think the Fed realized that there was a problem in the corporate and high yield bond market, one that was coming, because we knew that all of these uh, corporate corporations didn't trust the Fed to bail things out. So what did they do? They went out and pulled all of their short-term credit lines or revolvers. And they did that to, to stay in business. And the second phase is they, were, they knew they were going to eventually either issue stock or issue bonds. Now, the problem with the corporate bond market, is it's only so big. And to have this massive flow, this tidal wave of new issuance hit it, would have caused interest rates in the, on the corporate side to go up. It's kind of quite the opposite of how the treasury market is affected. Now, what does the, the Fed not want right now? Well, they don't want corporate rates to go higher because we're in year one of, I think, of a five-year window, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Brent, where there's a massive amount of corporate uh, loans that are coming due. And so yep. this would be a really big problem for corporations, not only to be financing their revolvers at a higher rate, but to have all this debt coming due at even higher rates and the whole system will blow apart. So I viewed it as the Fed was trying to take some stress off of it by reducing the supply of corporate bonds in the market. And then they're also trying to reduce high yields because they know that some of these corporate bonds are going to default or have their uh, rating dropped where they'll flow into the high yield space. And again, there just isn't enough people in the high yield market to absorb all of these bonds either. So I just look at the feds, you know, just trying to take pressure off of it. I don't think they have any other intention of printing money while it, it looks that way and it feels that way. I don't think that was their real intent. Now, maybe if they scale it up, it is, but again, I, I don't believe that's why they did it. Yeah, I tend to agree. And, you know, the, the analogy I've kind of used is that a lot of these programs, the Fed is not inflating things. They're, they're well, the, they're inflating it from a from a deflated position. They're, they're trying to keep the bucket full, even though the bucket has a bunch of holes in it. But the, the bucket is not getting the buckets maybe getting new water in it, but it's not getting more water in it. Now we're going to get to a part where I think we may disagree. I think we're going to initially agree. And then I think we're going to get to an area where we may disagree. But l l let's see. Okay, okay so we both we, we we both agree that uh, low rates are deflationary. We both agree um, that the that the dollar is the odd man out of your three-legged stool and that the dollar is going to rise. And I people might be surprised at this, but when that happens, I think that US equities are going to fall as well. I think we're going to have another downturn in US equities um, or at least another correction. Maybe maybe it's a crash as you describe whether it's a crash or a correction, I agree with you. The next time the dollar spikes, risk assets, including U.S. assets or U.S. equities, will fall. I think we're probably in agreement there. What I think happens after that, though, is that the rest of the world, the, the, the central bank, the Fed, will come out and do, you know, print another whatever, or print. That's not the right. We've already said that's not the right way to right. describe it. Expand their balance sheet. Um, I think the balance sheet could easily go to 20, 30, 40 trillion. Won't surprise me at all. Uh, I think the rest of the world will do that as well. And I think we are going to get into a, a, a scenario where the Fed is able to finance their deficits easier than the rest of the world will be able to um, finance their deficits. And as a result, I think we're going to have a period where interest rates start to rise not because outside the U.S., not because things are good and they're actually getting some inflation and growth, but because people don't want to uh, 
um, invest in those bonds because of counterparty risk. And I think it's going to start in the emerging markets. It'll move its way up to the middle markets and it'll eventually hit the bigger markets. But as that starts to happen and as interest rates start to rise and people start to sell foreign sovereign bonds, whether it's U.S. investors selling them or whether it's foreigners selling their own sovereign bonds, I think one of the areas that will get the flows that are coming out of sovereign bonds is U.S. equities, big, large cap U.S. equities. And so I think that is the scenario. That's the milkshake. So the, the rise that we've had in equities in the last three or four months, that is not the milkshake. It's pretty clear the milkshake has not been working for the last three or four months. I don't, I don't think anybody would, would say that it is, and I certainly wouldn't do it. But I do think that the, that, that, that potential is still there. What do you think about that? Well, when, when I first heard you explain it to me, I said, it doesn't really make any sense. And then you explained it to me, I think, about three more times. And I said, it doesn't make any sense. And then a few hours later, I texted you with my answer. So the reason, let's, let's start from the beginning, because I, I really do agree with many of your points. And the reason I think we'll see a, not just a correction, but a crash in equity prices is it starts with the bond market. Everybody's short the bond market right now, whether they're short from a speculative position or just short that they don't own it. So they have no insurance on their portfolio. We also know that pretty much everyone's long U.S. equities and that due to market cap waiting, they're long about five companies, which never is a recipe for right. success. And, right. and then you look at volatility and you still see people short volatility. So what will happen, the way this will start unwinding is obviously bond prices will break out. People will have to cover their, their bond shorts. There's a shortage of liquidity, as we already know, a shortage of dollars. So they'll sell stocks to cover their bond shorts, which will trigger a spike in volatility, which will mean they'll have to cover their vol shorts. And then, of course, the dollar is going to take off. So they'll have to cover their dollar shorts. And next thing you know, the whole system just crashes down. Now, what I see happening is, and I'll agree with you, I do think there will be a spike of inflation, not because people will realize that zero interest rates are dumb, it's because they will have flooded there because all the news will change about how equities were a bad idea and you shouldn't have been buying them at these PE ratios and shame on you, and deflation will be just hammering the news. And it'll do that because the smart money who's been sitting in bonds since 2016 has made a massive amount of money. And for anyone listening that doesn't realize that, go look at the duration of 30-year uh, bonds or 30-year zeros. There's a lot of upside um, to come because when interest rates get near zero, what's going to happen when the dollar spikes, it's literally just going to pin interest rates low at for a while. Now, it won't last real long because the smart money is going to be unloading these bonds like crazy to get into risk assets. Hence, you mentioned it perfectly. The first place you'll see it is an emerging market stock. Now, I'm not sure I get the whole foreign bond part, but what I do get is that world dollar liquidity cycle is broken. And how do you get that to restart? Well, there's a couple of play ways you could happen. One, you could have a world war. And I don't know if you wanted me to bring that up or not, but to me, I look at it as the board game of risk. And, and right now, the United States has this little glass you know, piece sitting on it, which is the world's reserve currency. So sometimes when the whole system goes awry, that piece gets moved out to the middle of the board and everyone fights to get it. Do I think that's likely? No, because I think as a country, the United States has done a very good job of making sure that militarily, yeah, no one can really challenge us. And if they do, they'll, they, they'll, they'll regret it pretty quickly. So, okay, so if everybody agrees that that's not a good idea, is how do we get the U.S. consumer ultimately to spend money abroad? Well, you've got to get stock prices up. 
So how do you do that? Well, you can go read the Swiss National Bank playbook, which is sell their currency on the open market, get dollars, and then buy U.S. equities. Because everybody knows, and the Fed has known this for decades, that when U.S. consumers feel rich, they will spend money because there's a 70% correlation between you know consumer spending and the stock market. So how do you how do you do it if you don't want to go to war with the United States and challenge them for the reserve status? Well, you simply print money and buy U.S. equities. Granted, it's probably not your best, your happiest day in your life if you're a central banker, but you know what? There's not really many other choices you have. So, it, so it, if a foreign central bank prints their own currency, they go buy the dollar, and then they go buy Coca-Cola or Philip mm-hmm. Morris or GE or whatever, you know, Facebook or whatever it Everything. is. They buy all. So, so, so in that scenario, what happens to the foreign currency? What happens to the dollar? And what happens to the Dow? Well, in that in that example, I think I have just validated the milkshake theory. If I'm if I'm mistaken, that you have a wildly strong well, no, dollar. I guess that's the point I want to make. Is listen, I don't know whether I'm going to be right or wrong. Um, I've, I've I've always tried to correct people and say it's not called the dollar milkshake fact. It's called the dollar milkshake theory. I just think that it's possible. And I think that not many people think it's possible. So therefore, it's attractive to me to kind of bet on it. Um, figure- it does make sense, though, right? Because if I'm an exporting nation, what do I want? I want a right. strong dollar and a weak currency. And if I'm not willing to challenge the United States over its reserve stats, how do I get it, right? I mean, the Swiss National Bank just wrote the whole playbook, and it does work. So you, well, you know, know, print I, money I, out of thin you- air. And, and, and to answer your question, what do you have? You have this odd event where you have a very strong dollar and you can have high equities. Now, that doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't mean it can't happen. Well, I get, you know, it's, it, I appreciate you bringing up the Swiss National Bank because it, it took me forever to try to figure out what in the hell the Swiss National Bank was doing. The first, you know, I think the first time I kind of realized what they were doing was, I don't know, maybe it was 2015 or 16, maybe even later than that. But, and I was like, these are, these are, they're supposed to be smart. They're central bankers. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. You're printing your own currency to buy U.S. equities that are overvalued. Yeah. And the more I, the more I thought about it, and the further we've gone along, I'm like, holy cow. Maybe these central bankers. I mean, I, I have I have pretty low opinion of central bankers, but that might be the smart that that might be the smartest move. It has the potential to be the smartest move of any central banker I've ever seen. Uh, we'll, we we will see anyway. Well, what, but what happens when U.S. equities start to crash and they have to unwind those positions too. Yeah, yeah. So well, that, that it, it cuts both ways, right? So, so what the Swiss National Bank would need is really a bunch of other. I mean, they're kind of the lone wolf right now, testing the waters. What they need is all the central bankers to to get band together and agree that this is a solution. And would they do it? I mean, it kind of makes sense because if you think about you know smart money positioning, we do know smart money has been very long bonds, and they count on the Fed to get their payday. So when rates hit zero, they're going to unload those, and they're going to buy want want to buy risk assets. Well, they're not going to buy them if they don't think there's some upside to them, and well, maybe I, I, yeah, there's some yeah. manipulation to, in the in from the Fed's perspective of hey, you got to fix this problem. And uh, if you raise asset prices and stock prices, we'll go out and spend money. Well, okay, go. How do you do it? Get people to print money and buy U.S. equities. Yeah, you know, like the people like Lacey and, and Raul. I mean, they've been bond bulls forever, and it's you know, it's been just incredible call, uh, in- incredible. Uh, you know, even a few years ago, when when and, and even me, me, I was saying interest rates are rising, and they, they stuck by it, and they were absolutely right. Um, but I think at this point, with interest rates where they are. 
you know, and Raul said this recently, you know, at, at this point, interest rates are a trade. It's it's not a long-term investment, right? And so if if I think if the really smart money knows we're kind of at the zero bound, it's a trade at this point, and we get that last spike in treasuries, they've got the smart money is going to be selling and the dumb money is going to be buying and the smart money who just has sold is going to have cash yep. and they're going to have to look around and say, where am I going? And I think one of the places they're going to go is big blue chip U.S. equities. Um, and so if and if and if and if the central banks know that the, all the central banks are going to, you know, do more QE and do more stimulus. In other words, another pl- replay of what we've just done over you know, in 2009 and what we've just done over the last four or five months. Why wouldn't other central banks do the same thing? Why wouldn't other central banks try to weaken their currency and, and so that they could export more and buy equity so they could run it, write it back up the way the Swiss National Bank has done for the last four months? I don't know. It's it's, it's extremely interesting. I, I think anybody who likes macro and doesn't like what's going on right now should just quit and go home and find something else to do because – if you don't like it now, you're never going to like it. Yeah. And, and what you're describing is pretty much an exact replay of the great financial crisis. I mean, it's exactly what happened when the smart money dumped their bonds. And people, they said, you know, how can you be bond bullish? And you know, have you seen the interest rates? And I said, look, I'm not buying it for the coupon. I'm buying it for the same reason you buy stock, because I want price appreciation. They go, huh? Yeah, it's called duration. There's a lot of money in plain old bonds. And I do not plan on being a long-term investor. I plan on as soon as they get around zero or so, I'm deep-sixing it because you're right. They're going to go buy these risk assets and emerging market assets and bet on inflation. And it's going to make sense. The central banks are going to come out and do a lot of QE. But guess what's going to happen? It's, it's going to appear to work until it doesn't. So there'll be a short burst of inflation. And then it's going to rotate back over to deflation. And then central bankers will have no choice. And that's where where potentially the milkshake theory starts becoming a valid option. Now, will it be? Who who knows? But is it something that as a money manager that you have to say, hey, this is a valid option and I need to consider it? Oh, absolutely. And over time, we'll probably come up with other options that will happen. But I think as a money manager, you have to be open-minded to, yes, this could happen. This isn't Brent Johnson is going to call the, the biggest call in the world. He could be right. We don't know could be wrong. But I, I absolutely have to consider that as an exporting nation, I want a weaker currency. And if everything else has failed, well, I'll just buy U.S. equities. Could work. Well, we'll see. You know, I've, uh, pe- people love to point out how often I get things wrong. And unfortunately, it happens more often than I would like it to. But you know what? I'm a, bi- I'm a big boy. I can take it. And uh, I-, I just find it all fascinating. And uh, Steve, I got to say, like, you've been a breath of fresh air. The, uh, coming across you a month or so ago and, and watching your stuff and now having had the chance to talk to you a little bit, I love that you're in the game. I love that you're you're fighting and you're trying to help your clients and you're educating people. And whether or not they agree with you or not, you know, I don't care. I know that you're doing good work and I appreciate what you're doing. So I, I just want I just wanted you to hear from me that I, you know, if I know it can be kind of lonely and and, and sometimes you know when you're 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 in your office alone at night and you're trying to figure out the, how this spreadsheet correlates to that price and you know like why the hell am I doing this? But uh, you know. You've got a kindred soul here, and I appreciate the work you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. You know, lately I've said, you know, being a bond bull is being like the kid at school that just gets made fun of and people laugh at. Uh, being a, a, a dollar bull is a kid that gets beat up after school. I mean, everybody's <laughs> coming at you, and it's yeah, okay yeah. because, you know, it, it, you know, we're in an industry of probabilities. And, and managing money is just how do you get – 
the highest return for the least amount of risk for your clients. And it's all probability based. And I have to look at the fact that the probabilities are, are, are favorable that the dollar goes higher and I'm willing to, you know, put my neck out there and my money on the line. And, and that's what makes it exciting. And, you know, whether people agree with my data or not, they're more than welcome to come and post comments on my YouTube about, Hey, the dollar went up or down today and you were wrong. Yeah. Because I was worried about tomorrow, you know, I'm a long-term dollar bull, and uh, when it breaks over 103, maybe Brent, you and I will have a milkshake party. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll do that. We'll do that. Okay. Well, Steve, this has been fantastic. Uh, why don't before we sign off, why don't you tell people how they can follow you and how they can find you? Yeah, uh, the easiest ways to find me, of course, is on my website at stephenvanmeter.com, and they're more than welcome to join the fun on Twitter. I'm at um, Metra Stephen. M E T R E. Uh, Stephen, and then of course you can find me on uh, YouTube three days a week uh, with my macro show as well. And now we can find you on Real Vision as well. And I and that it's it's kind of amazing to look back. You know, the Steve when he first signed up for Real Vision could have never imagined that he you know would get to be at you know uh, seen on the same stage with his peers to talk about his views. And it's I think it's just a testament of what. Real Vision offers as a service, and no matter where you're at, whether you're just new to macro or you've been in it 30 years, that there's a lot to learn and a lot of different opinions. And uh, it, it's I think this is going to be a real fun time here in the next couple months. Yeah, you're here now, and it's the Super Bowl, so lo- let's enjoy it. Great talking to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.